And while you're doing that, you can also turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And if you do not have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to use the one in front of you, in the pew in front of you. And we'd love for you to be able to follow along with us. We've been walking through this letter, and now we have arrived in chapter 4, and we're going to look at these few verses beginning in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, which read, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Thessalonian church was a growing church, but at the same time faced many challenges. Now, do you believe you can actually be growing in your relationship with God and still face the challenge of sin? Well, of course you do, because that's your daily life. It's my daily life. You know, we are walking with God, we're growing in the Lord, but yet we're still challenged by temptation and we're challenged by sin. And when we face those temptations, we need others in our lives to encourage us, to challenge us. And I wonder, do you have someone like that? Do you have someone in your life that can not only encourage you, but also challenge you in your walk with God? Well, the Thessalonians had someone like that, and his name was Paul. And he challenges them and encourages them through the writing of this letter. And Paul had heard about their growth. He had heard about how they have grown in the Lord, they're showing love to one another, yet they still are vulnerable in a number of areas And so he writes to them to address some of these vulnerabilities. And in verses 9 through 12, he's going to give them instruction on how to both love one another as well as love those outside the church. And so it begins in verse 9 by acknowledging the presence of godly love within their community. And so look with me at verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And so Paul says, concerning Philadelphia, you know, brotherly love. And he uses this term that was normally used to describe a sibling's love for one another within a natural family. And yet in the New Testament, this word is used to describe a Christian's love for another Christian. And what we see both in the church then and the church now is that we are... We are bound together by a love that runs deeper even than that which is found in the natural family, or at least should run deeper. And this is what Jesus said even during His earthly ministry when He was teaching. Uh, you, can, you may remember when He was talking with His disciples and uh, His mother and His brothers call out to Him to come outside And so Jesus is notified and he's told that your mother and your brothers are calling out for you, wanting you to come out. And he says this, he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. And so even Jesus affirms that there's this love within the church among those who truly know Christ that runs deeper than any other love 
And so the question is, where does that love come from? How do you, how do you get that type of love? And how are you enabled to demonstrate that type of love? Well, Paul says something interesting. He says the Thessalonians were actually taught to love this way by God. And, of course, that prompts another question. How, how, how are you taught to love by God? How does that work? Well, we know from other places in Scripture that God is love. And, therefore, the, the purer that we love, <clears throat> the more godly is our love. And, therefore, uh, the more we are like God, the more we love. And so, I believe the way in which the Thessalonians were taught to love by God was through the gospel. And this is, and this is what I mean. Love flows from God to us through the gospel. And I'm going to explain how I think that happens. Uh, think back before you became a Christian. Uh, and perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. Just think about yourself. Uh, you have some concept of love. And I would argue that if you're not a Christian, that concept is somewhat clouded and broken, yet you still have a concept of love and an understanding of love to some degree. And then you heard the gospel. And the gospel is that God is love. And yet at the same time, although God loves you, uh, we have sinned against God. In other words, we, are, we spit in the face of God's love. And at some point in your life, you've said you didn't want that. And then you read a verse like uh, Romans 5.8 that says, God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so you see the fact that God is love and yet you've turned from that love and yet God has pursued you through giving His own Son, Jesus Christ, so that if you place your faith in Christ, you can be forgiven and you can have this new life, this eternal life that is birthed out of God's love for you. And so if you decide to place your faith in Christ, then you begin to experience this new life. And now, if God is love and the gospel is how He demonstrates His love toward us, then I believe the more we understand the gospel and actually what God has done for us through Christ, the more we will be able to reflect that type of love to other people. And so I believe that this is what it means when Paul says they were taught by God. And this is exactly what we see in the Thessalonian church. The first few chapters of this letter talk about how the gospel came to Thessalonica and the people embraced it and they were changed by it. And then what began to happen was this love of God began to flow within the church community and then it began to flow within the city and now it's beginning to spill over even into the, the, the county, so to speak, in Macedonia. It would be like, you know, if this church, if we were saturated with God's love and it began to spill over into our neighborhoods, into the city of Augusta, and then it began to spill over even into you know, Athens and Atlanta and going through Georgia... That's what it was like in Thessalonica. This love was bubbling up within the people. They were grasping it. They were understanding it. They were practicing it. And it was becoming well known all around Thessalonica. And so what we see is that God's love was implanted in their life through the gospel. 
So we see that God's love flows to us through the gospel. And then what we see is that God love, God's love flows through us to others. And this is what we see in verses uh, 9 and 10, which when we combine them, we see the flow of the love of God through us. So Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Which Macedonia is, is like uh, Georgia, for example. And Thessalonica is like Augusta. And so it's spreading out even beyond their own city. And Paul says, But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Keep growing in your love for God and others. And if I had to illustrate it, I'd illustrate it like this. You know, we've had a lot of rain here in Augusta. <laughs> you may remember back in May, uh, you, you were, you know, watering your, your own plants with your hose pipe or whatever it may be, uh, which you probably hadn't done that in a while. And we were kind of going about our own business, not paying much attention to the streams and the rivers and the lakes and the ponds. And that was before, you know, it began to rain every day for the past month. Or so. And now, you know, when you pass over a bridge, you look down, and what was once just a nice, calm, steady stream of water, you look down, and it's this muddied, kind of turbulent flow. Like if you were, you know, going down Berkman Road and you know, cross over Raised Creek, you know, you notice, okay, this is something different here. It's a little muddier, a little, a little faster. Or if you go over the 13th Street Bridge like I did yesterday going into North Augusta, you perhaps go a little slower because you want to try to catch a glimpse of the amphitheater stage that's submerged underneath the Savannah River now. And you're watching the news and you're seeing how the water level is rising. And, and basically what we see is that the effects of the rain are clearly visible now. <laughs> There's no doubting uh, that. However, you know it started with just a drop. And then another, and then another, and several days worth. And then what happens is the ground gets saturated. And when the ground can't absorb any more water, it begins to run off. And that water begins to run off into the rivers and the streams, and it begins to collect in the ponds and the lakes. And the next thing you know, the effects are very visible. And I think that's what's happened in Thessalonica. Someone has experienced the love of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then another. And then another. And then the next thing you know, families are affected. Neighborhoods are affected. The city becomes saturated. And the love of God begins to run off. Not only into the neighborhood, into the city, but even into the surrounding areas. And I think that's what we see here. And I think that's what God wants to, to see happen even within us as well. That the love of God would, would become so evident that it would be unavoidable. You, you couldn't uh, encounter any of you out, out in Augusta, in your workplace, in your family, going to the grocery store without sensing, experiencing, coming in contact with the love of God in person. 
Now with that said, that's how I believe that God taught the Thessalonians to love. It was through this understanding of the gospel they began to show forth this love. And it begins to flow out of them. However, one thing I've noticed, and perhaps you have as well, is that when you come to Christ, you begin to understand what love is, and you begin to be compelled to love others. However, uh, applying that love to specific circumstances can be difficult. It requires wisdom. Just like rain uh, is a wonderful thing. Water is a wonderful thing when channeled properly, but it can also be very destructive. And even in our own love for other people, we can sometimes hurt them or hinder them in their spiritual growth. And I think that's why Paul writes the remainder of this passage we're looking at this morning, is that he's saying, love is present, love is on the move within you, and yet I want to give you some pointers on how to channel it. And here's how he channels it. He gives basically two banks, if you will, if you want to picture it like a river. One bank has to do with our words, and the other bank has to do with our work. And he's saying, I want, I want you to pay attention to these two areas of your lives so that you can channel, continue to channel God's love within the church as well as outside the church community. And this is how he says it in verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so we see the two banks here. The first one, the river bank of words, we'll call it, is in verse 11, the first part. That we are to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs. You know, it takes wisdom to know when to speak. Does it not? And I want to read to you several passages from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And then a few passages from uh, a few letters in the New Testament dealing with this point. Proverbs eleven twelve. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Proverbs 17.28 Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs 18.2 A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 29.11 A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Now let me move in a few uh, letters in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13.1 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In James 1.19 Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. There are times when 
love requires you to speak, and there are times when love requires you to remain silent. And you know, for some of you, you, you need to learn to be silent and not speak up as much. You know, maybe hold back your opinion. Um, but others of you, in order to show love, to allow God's love to flow through you, you actually need to learn to speak up a little more and not to remain you know, permanently quiet. And so you need to ask yourself some type of form of this question before you speak, if possible. And that is, is what I'm going to say help people to know God and follow Him? Is, that, is it going to be beneficial? Is it going to help them to know God and follow Him? That doesn't mean that you don't communicate hard truths at times, because that will be necessary. But I do think it needs to be guided by love. And it's the love of God that I think will give us this uh, discernment, this wisdom in how to use our words. And we're not always going to do it perfectly and we're going to make mistakes and we're hopefully going to be quick to ask forgiveness and seek reconciliation when that happens. But love that pushes us to look out for the interest of others more so than our own will provide the wisdom we need to speak or know when to speak and when, that we, and when we should remain quiet. So that's one side of the riverbank is how we use our words, and the other side of the riverbank is how we use our work or how we work. Paul tells us in verses 11 and 12 that we are to work with our hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. See, there's a few unique situations within Thessalonica that may not be the case uh, here today with us, but there may be. You have to answer this on your own. But we suffer from other issues. But listen to what was going on in Thessalonica in the first century. There was, a, there was a cultural problem going on, and then there was a theological problem that was happening within the church. The first problem, this cultural problem, was that there were these <clears throat> wealthy patrons who would actually gather for themselves many dependents. In other words, if you were a dependent of a patron, you would not work. They would simply pay for your basic necessities. And your job or your role was to make, kind of follow these men around and make them seem more important than they are. <laughs> so that was a cultural problem. And so Paul speaks into that and he says, no, you need to work. Don't do that. Don't be involved in that cultural uh, deceptiveness of trying to elevate somebody falsely and just so you can have your basic needs met, but you need to work. And the second issue that they were dealing with within the church was a theological one. <clears throat> you had some members of the church that they were so focused on the second coming of Jesus Christ that they actually stopped working and waited on the return of Christ. And so in doing that, it put undue strain on the church community because the church felt like <clears throat> we need to care for our own. And so they felt like they needed to support them, you know, make sure their needs were met while they're just, it's not that they couldn't work, they just were not working because they thought Jesus was coming anytime and so why work? Well, Paul says, well, what you need to do 
is go to work. <laughs> it's the same solution. You need to work. Now, there's two reasons why Paul tells them they need to work. The first one is in verse 12, at the end of verse 12. And Paul says, first of all, as Christians, we do have a duty if we're able. And that is that we, we do not want to be dependent on anyone. You know, work is a, a good thing. And maybe in a, a sermon uh, in the future, we'll deal with the, the doctrine of work and get into what the Bible says about work. But work is a good thing. Work was put in place before sin entered the world. You know, man and woman were meant to cultivate the ground, take care of the garden, oversee the animals, etc., have dominion over the earth. So this was a good thing. Work's a good thing. We're not made to be idle. We're not made to be idle. We're, we're meant to be active, and we are to be known as good workers. And so by working, we, we can provide for ourselves. And that's the first point Paul makes here. He says, we need to work so that we will not be dependent on anyone, but that we will be able to provide for ourselves and for our family. And so one of the ways we can actually show love is by working so that we do not become an, an, a strain on the broader community. You know, one scholar noted that there's a, there's a certain paradox within Christianity. On the one hand, we are to give of ourselves, give of our resources, and help others because there are some among us who are not able to work. They're not able to do the things that you can do. And so, we need to help one another. And yet, at the same time, if the ability is there, it is our duty to help ourselves as well. And so we are to give of ourselves, give of our resources to help one another, but at the same time, we should be trying to do all we can also to help ourselves, to support ourselves. As another scholar comments that what Paul is condemning here is not unemployment as such. And what he means by that is he's not condemning when people want to work but can't find it. But what he's condemning here is idleness. Having the ability to work. Having the ability to provide for yourself and just not pursuing it. And becoming an undue strain on the community. So the first reason we're to work is actually motivated out of love so that we can provide for ourselves and seek to give into the greater community. The second reason we should work and not be idle is so that we can be good examples to those outside the church. You know, John Calvin said this, he says, Nothing is more unseemly than a man that is idle and good for nothing, who profits neither himself nor others, and seems born only to eat and drink. And I think his point here is, you know, we're not made to be idle. We're meant to be active. Whether that be in a vocational job where you get a paycheck, or even just active about God's work. Maybe you're retired or limited in your ability. But the question is, are you active? Are you on mission with God? Are you seeking to put in, in practice the gifts and the abilities that God has given you? And what we see here, and I think we probably could all agree about this point, and that is 
both Christians and non-Christians see a good work ethic as a sign of character. I don't know if anyone would say, you know, if there was someone sitting in front of us who was completely able to work and a job was offered to him or her and they rejected it because they just didn't want to work, that we would say, you know, that's great. That's a great thing. We wouldn't say that because work, a work, good work ethic, a willingness to be used by God, this is a sign of a good character. This is a sign that there's love active within your heart and your soul and that we want to be a good testimony to those around us, which is what Paul mentions here, that we want to be an example to those outside the church. And so how we work can even be a testimony uh, to those who don't know Christ. So Paul encourages and challenges the Thessalonians and us as well to allow, allow the love of God to flow through us to others through our words and our works and everything else in our lives. And just imagine, what, you know, what would it be like if our church, if your life was so saturated with the love of God that it compelled you to really think about how you use your words, how you use your energies, and that the love of God would, would begin to spill over outside of Sunday morning, into Monday morning, Tuesday morning, throughout the week, throughout this community, throughout the city, throughout this state, and even into the world. But you know, the only way that's going to happen, the only way that we're going to be able to channel the love of God through our word and our work is if we first receive the love of God through the work of Christ. That's how God teaches you to love. You must first receive it through Christ, through the work of Christ. Then you can channel it to others. And so the only way we're going to see this saturation happen is by growing in our understanding of Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished for us. Let us pray together. God, thank You for Your Word that it speaks truth to us, that it guides us, it directs us for Your glory and so that others may know You. Well, thank You that Paul writes to us that we need to be concerned about how we're speaking and loving uh, one another within Your church, but also how we're acting towards those outside Your church. So perhaps they would catch a glimpse of who You are. Well, I pray You challenge each person this morning. Encourage each person this morning to uh, take a step in the direction you would have them to go so that they would become uh, a billboard for your grace and your love wherever they go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.